0: At the time of the death of Attila, confusion reigned in the two Pannonias and the other borderlands of the Danube. Then Severinus, the most holy servant of God, came from the east to the marches of Noricum and tarried in a little town which is called Asteris. Hello and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. This is episode 13, The Holy Man of Noricum. My subject today wandered in the valleys of Austria and Bavaria, beginning around 450, up until his death in 483. His ministry bridged the death of Attila and the death of the Western Empire. He is not as popular or well-known as St. Patrick, or a great theologian like Augustine. His life is not filled with daring do, like George. But his humble biography contains clues to daily life in the world of the 5th century and the forces that were at work to create medieval Europe. The life of Saint Severinus was written by a man named Eugippius, who knew him personally as a disciple. His writing bears a verisimilitude that's lacking from a lot of other saints' lives. Instead, we can find some insight into the conditions and anxieties that were driving people in the West as the Empire fell apart. This episode isn't going to contain a lot of politics, but hopefully it will illuminate something about the lives that those politics touched. By the time Severinus arrived, Riverside Noricum, or Noricum Repensis in Latin, was more or less on its own, as the powers in Italy were struggling to maintain their hold over Gaul or Africa, or bickered back and forth among themselves. The mountain country held valuable iron deposits, but in the grand scheme of things it was relatively poor and out of the way. The town called Asterus where Severinus first arrived, can't be identified with 100% certainty, but the most likely candidate is the village of Sventendorf, about 25 miles up the Danube from Vienna. Nowadays, it's home to a nuclear power station that was never brought online. In Severinus' time, it was a small walled town, one of many along the Roman shore of the Danube. Not large now, and not large then. I have a link to a map of the area in the show notes. The article is in German, but don't let that put you off. And where had this man Severinus come from? Well, he was coy about it, to those who asked, and joked about it once. if you think me a runaway slave, then prepare a ransom you could offer for me when I am claimed. No one would have mistaken him for a man of slave birth, though. Eugipius tells us, quote, his speech revealed a man of purest Latin stock, end quote, which is today interpreted to mean that he originated from somewhere in southern Italy or maybe North Africa, and was of upper, middle, or even aristocratic birth. He certainly had a thorough religious education. it is understood that he first departed into some desert place of the east because of his fervid desire for a more perfect life and that thence, constrained by divine revelation, he later came to the towns of Riverside Noricum, near Upper Pannonia. So he himself was wont to hint in obscure language, as if speaking of another, naming some cities of the East, and indicating that he had passed by miracle through the dangers of an immense journey. That would make sense, as the Eastern provinces were the center of Christian thought and theological development, and had been since the beginning. Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch were all centers of religious study. The East was also a center for early developments of Christian asceticism, which Severinus practiced and encouraged in his disciples. Fasting and self-denial of varying degrees were practiced by acolytes across Anatolia and in the Syrian and Egyptian wildernesses. And I suppose now is as good a time as any to mention my own personal biases. This is our first episode with religion at its center. And we're going to be talking about religion quite a bit going forward from here. It is about the Middle Ages, after all. Christianity and later Islam will be critical components of the story. My basic stance on the subject of religion, which I feel necessary to tell you, is that generally speaking, it's not for me. It's fascinating, but in an academic way. My general policy will be to reject the supernatural explanation of events in the historical narrative. I don't think that's particularly unreasonable, really, no matter what your relationship to the divine is. But while I reject the supernatural as a force in human history, I also reject the notion that religion is universally a bad thing, capital B, capital T. I can understand the attractions of religion. I envy people of faith a little bit, and I can appreciate the beauty of the Christian message. It just doesn't ring anything in me personally. I have no problem with whatever you believe. When I sound like I may be praising or criticizing a religious institution, you should understand I'm speaking of that institution as it existed in the time and place of discussion. I have my own opinions about all kinds of denominations and institutions today, and they will all remain my own. Some historians and commentators are deeply cynical of religion as it relates to politics. They'll paint the ruling class as conniving and without any real interest in faith except as a tool of control. I personally am very agreeable to the notion of a conniving ruling class, but I am also open to the possibility that leaders can sometimes be guided by genuine religious feeling, or some combination of genuine belief and craven self-interest. There was probably a shorter way to say all of that, but there it is. Do with it as you will. Now back to Severinus. Severinus arrived at Asteris on the Danube and began to preach. He warned the town was in grave danger. That wasn't hard to believe. In spite of images certain podcast hosts may have posted on Instagram recently, Asterisk lay in the wide-open plain, now known as the Vienna Basin. It was a clearinghouse of barbarian bands moving between the Hungarian plains to the southeast, the Julian passes into Italy, and the German lands to the north of the river. The Pannonian lands to the southeast, remember, had been ceded by Aetius to Attila the Hun not too long before, and so the area was even more active with barbarians than it normally was. Severinus advocated fasting and prayer as defenses against those roving dangers, but found little support among the population. Forewarned by divine revelation that the town was doomed, he abandoned Asterix to its fate, saying, I go in haste from a stubborn town that will swiftly perish. And he moved on to the next town downriver, called Comaginus. Comaginus is today the modern city of Toulne, there Severinus found that the town had been occupied by barbarians, who had, quote, entered into a league with the Romans within, end quote, and who had guarded the town closely. Severinus, though, was able to enter without difficulty and went straight to the church to begin preaching. The people of this town, it seems, were terrified by the presence of these barbarians, which suggests that this relationship was less one of cooperation and more one of extortion. Like if the grasshoppers in a bug's life stuck around to protect the anthill, or less flippantly, like the protection rackets that hundreds of neighborhoods have been subjected to by criminal gangs over the years. Severinus reassured the townspeople that all would be well if they would trust in God's protection. The people were just as disinclined to listen to him as were the people of Asteris, but then a man arrived from that town bearing news that it had been sacked and destroyed by the barbarian Huns, just as Severinus had foretold, even to the day. So who are all these barbarians running around Roman Noricum? taking control of towns and sacking some of them. Here, at the beginning of the story, in 450, they were certainly under the auspices of Attila's Huns, but ethnically they could have been of any number of tribes, and soon the whole chessboard would be upended. When Attila died in early 453, his sons fought amongst themselves to take his place, and the Goths and other German peoples who had been his subjects saw an opportunity. Many of Attila's lieutenants were Goths, Gepids, or even some Romans. You remember Orestes? And the structure of the Huns' empire was such that they all had their own followings. Under the leadership of a Gepid king called Arteric, a coalition of Germanic tribes rebelled against the sons of Attila and defeated them at a place called Nidau, somewhere in the Carpathian Basin. Jordanes reported that quote, the bravest nations tore themselves to pieces, end quote, and that the army that defeated the Huns was composed of every Germanic tribe, with the Ostrogoths, the largest group, having made the greatest sacrifice. But later scholars point out that Jordanes was writing in the service of an Ostrogothic king, and so was motivated to amplify the Ostrogoths' contribution, with Hervig Wolfram and a few others suggesting that the Ostrogoths may have sat out the conflict entirely. Later on, there would be animosity between the Gepids and the Goths, which might be explained by the failure of the latter to contribute to the German liberation. Regardless, throughout Severinus's career, ministering across Noricum, the former constituents of Attila's empire were ranging across the territory, seeking provisions and new bases of operations. I've seen them compared to motorcycle gangs, but I don't think that's right. To me, they're more like the Freikorps, after World War I. Military units that had become disconnected from their larger force, but weren't ready to stop fighting yet, and so inflicted themselves on the civilian populations in their paths. They weren't motivated by ideology like the Freikorps were. Survival and power were the names of the game. Tribes with familiar names, like the Alamanni, the Suevi, and the Ostrogoths, all make appearances in the story of Severinus, along with other more obscure people like the Sciri and the Rugii, who are coming to prominence for the first time. We're not told which of these tribes was in charge at Comaginus when Severinus arrived. They're simply the barbarians. Once the town folk heard of the destruction of Asteris, they became willing to listen to Severinus. Maybe he did have a special relationship with the divine, since he seemed able to see the future. So he gathered the citizens to huddle in the church for a strategy meeting about removing these barbarian interlopers from the midst. For three days, the townsfolk gathered in the church, praying, fasting, and asking forgiveness for their sins. On the third night, an earthquake struck the region. I'm going to pause here and note that that isn't actually that unusual or miraculous. Austria experiences an earthquake strong enough to do some kind of damage every two or three years. This one sent the barbarian occupiers into a panic. They mistook the disaster for an enemy attack, and compelled the citizens to open the gates, and they ran out into the dark, where their terror was augmented by divine influence, so that in the wanderings and confusion of the night they slew one another with the sword. Thus utter destruction consumed the enemy, and the people, saved by divine aid, learned through the saint to fight with heavenly arms. This earthquake must not have been too terribly severe, since no mention is made of destruction in the town but the interesting thing is the occupiers' reaction to it. If they thought the town was coming under attack, then they must have believed that their forces were out there with the motive and wherewithal to attack, probably the same band of Huns that had attacked Asteris, which suggests that this band was independent. My point is just to reiterate the chaos that was dominating the region at this moment in time. These war bands are not allied with each other necessarily. Some may work together more or less closely when convenient, most are clearly rivals, like street gangs who fight over this or that block of a neighborhood, and the majority of the population is caught in the middle of those fights. The most active gang in Severinus' life were the Rugii. They're a little bit of a puzzle. They're certainly Germans, mentioned in Tacitus' first century work on the Germans, and occupied similar territories to the Goths in their early history, so they may have been a subset of the Goths, who became more independent as time went on. The problem is we have no way, really, of knowing how the Rugii or any other tribe saw themselves in relation to others. To add to the confusion, from the 6th century onward, the name was used to refer to various Slavic peoples, including the Russians. It's probably best to just say that in the late 5th century, the Rugii spoke an East German language probably related to Gothic, and previously they were ruled by the Huns, and leave it at that. The king of the Rugii, when they first mentioned in the Vita of Severinus, bears the remarkable name Flexithius, who came to Severinus to ask whether or not he would prevail over the Ostrogoths in these conflicts. Most of the armed conflict that's mentioned in the story of St. Severinus is conflict between barbarian groups. Only occasionally are Roman garrison troops mentioned, and there is always a point made that their forces are at a disadvantage. Never are the mobile field armies brought into play. The Roman military presence along the upper Danube, and indeed just about everywhere, was in the process of evaporating to the point of non-existence. I am obviously not going to go over every incident reported by Eugippius. There are almost 50 of them in the book. Just a couple more, though. And I'll point out a couple that I think give a good idea of the world at the time and a celebrity cameo in one of them. The city of Favianus heard of Severinus's doings and asked him to visit them. The city was in a state of famine, and believed that Severinus was the only one who could save them. Favianus is now Mautern, by the way, also in Austria, further upriver from the other two, hillier country. When he arrived, it was revealed to him that a rich woman, named Procula, was hoarding food. He called her to appear before the church congregation, and said, Daughter of the most noble parents, why do you make yourself the handmaid of avarice, and stand forth the slave of covetousness, which is idolatry? The Lord in his compassion has regard for his servants, and you shall have no use for your ill gotten wealth, except to cast it into the stream of the Danube, and so exhibit to fishes the humanity you have denied to men. So you age yourself more than the poor, while Christ hungers. I'm paraphrasing all of these by the way, because the translation I was working from is from nineteen fourteen and has a very King James Bible kind of quality to it. Shortly after that encounter, trade boats from upriver in Raetia brought supplies that had been held up by the ice, and Procula opened her stores to the general public, Raetia being essentially Switzerland and southern Bavaria. So here we have another great anxiety of the time, and really all time, hunger, or as the wonks like to call it now, food security. At the height of the empire, If famine became an issue in some part of a province, a good governor would make arrangements for relief, often out of his own pocket. That is not to say that there weren't plenty of bad or indifferent governors, or that there were never any sustained shortages under Roman rule. Of course there were. But there was an infrastructure in place that made it at least possible to make those kinds of arrangements. Not so now. Roads, as any resident of New Jersey can tell you, have to be constantly maintained, and organizing that maintenance over a large area requires significant manpower, especially in the absence of earth-moving machinery. Previously, that work might be done by the army or organized by local elites. Now, in the story of Procula, we have a local elite hoarding food and refusing to take a role in the welfare of the community. This was part of a wider trend across the empire. As the barbarian raids took more and more territory out of productive use, tax revenue was lost, this is at a time when the need to pay an army is greater than ever. So, predictably, the central government sought to make up the difference in revenue by raising taxes in the remaining unspoiled territories. In towns where the local elites had once competed with one another by funding greater and grander public works projects, they were now tasked with the deeply unpleasant responsibility of tax collection, and if they failed to produce the revenues required by Ravenna, they had to make up the difference out of their own pockets. A position on the town council, once a badge of honor, was now drudgery and potentially a ruinous burden. The result is called the Flight of the Curiales, Curiales being the local councils on which these people sat. The flight took the form of seeking jobs with the imperial government, which conferred tax exemptions, service in the army, which conferred tax exemptions, or purchasing titles and honors, often fraudulently, that conferred tax exemptions. Urban life thereby became much less and less attractive, as the curiales became less and less interested in maintaining the empire's towns and cities. The general population certainly noticed that the higher-ups were withdrawing from their responsibilities, and the New Testament certainly has some choice words for the miserly. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. That's Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 21. So it isn't surprising to find a story like this here in Severinus's, with Procula being called before the congregation to account for herself to the whole community. Whether Procula's story is true literally or not, it certainly points to a tension between the people and their nominal leadership. It's also worth noting in passing the extremely local nature of this famine. No other town is mentioned as suffering so at the same time, and relief does not come by road from one of Favianus' immediate neighbors, but by river from the mountains. The mountains part seems odd to me. Maybe they were carrying cheese? The road network, as I've already noted, was not in the best shape it had ever been in, and water transport had always been more cost-effective than overland. Anyway... That was true, really, all the way up until the Industrial Revolution and the arrival of railways. I'll probably get into it more next episode, but I found a statistic that gave the cost ratio of transport as 40 to 5 to 1, meaning it cost 40 times more to ship goods over land than it did by sea, and 5 times more by river, which is something. There are plenty of other miracles and teachings of St. Severinus described by Eugippius, including the driving away of locusts, food security, forbidding the river to flood above a certain spot, food security, and just general safety, and the brief resurrection of a dead man. He, by the way, objects to being awakened and is immediately returned to his rest, which is fairly amusing. Severinus's fame spread around the district as he traveled up and down the Danube and its tributaries, setting up communities of ascetics who followed his example of prayer and self-denial. If you're already hungry, might as well make it a virtue. The largest of these communities was the monastery he built near Favianus, where he spent as much time as he could. There he could both promote the true faith and teach others to spread his message. And it was here that he received visitors who came as they were passing to or from Italy, including some barbarians. Most of the barbarians were Arian Christians, remember, and the resolutely Catholic Eugippius almost uses barbarian and heretic interchangeably. But Severinus's piety had become famous enough to impress even them. One of these was, quote, A tall youth, meanly clad. While he stood stooping that his head might not touch the roof of the lowly cell, he learned from the man of God that he was to win renown. Go forth, said Severinus. Go forth to Italy. Now clad in wretched hides, you shall soon distribute rich gifts to many. This youth's name was Odoacer, the chief of the Scyri, who, spoiler alert, will soon enough depose the last Western emperor and name himself king of Italy. After many years ministering to the towns of Noricum, St. Severinus called his followers to him in his cell. He had been troubled by pains in his side for three days and knew that his time was near. He gave instructions to them on the treatment of his body, instructed them to remember their vows and live without sin. He forbid that any of them should weep for him. He predicted that he should not become too attached to their home as it was destined to be destroyed sooner rather than later. And on the 8th of January, 482... St. Severinus died. Eugipius says that he spent his last hours singing psalms and died after pronouncing Psalm 150, the last one. Praise him with clanging cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. He was placed in a light wooden coffin in anticipation of the predicted move. And sure enough, six years later, A prince of the Rugii crossed the river to attack and loot the monastery, taking everything that wasn't nailed down. He was killed by a kinsman shortly thereafter. The inhabitants of Noricum evacuated south into Italy, which was by that time the kingdom of Odoacer, as Severinus had predicted. The monks bore the saint's body with them on their journey, and we are told that it performed miracles along the way. Finally, Eugippus and the other brethren settled at Naples and founded a new monastery, on an island in the harbor. Supposedly, they repurposed a villa that had been the place of exile for the last emperor, Romulus Augustulus. The relics of St. Severinus still reside in Naples, at the church of Santi Severino e Socio. Some years later, around 511, Eugippius sat down to write an outline of his mentor's life and deeds, which he sent to another scholar of his acquaintance, by name of Paschasius, to put into a more formal and correct form. But Paschasius refused, on the grounds that Eugippius' account couldn't be improved. Just for fun and flavor, and in a bid for your sympathy, let me read you a bit of the letter Eugipius included at the end of the Vita. This is from the reply of Paschasius. Dearest brother in Christ, you measure me by the measure of your skill, eloquence, and happy leisure, and disdain to consider my vexatious employments and manifold imperfections. Yet through the contemplation of your love, I sustain the injury to my modesty. End quote. This is what I'm dealing with here, people. It is also very similar in form to the letter that opens Jordani's history of the Goths, so you can see there's a high degree of formalization in the kind of writing at the time. So that's what has come down to us. What are we to make of it? Saints' biographies were already a popular literary and didactic form by the time Eugippius put pen to paper. They're usually, as I've been saying, called vitae, which is just Latin for lives, and were a popular literary subject throughout late antiquity and the Middle Ages. They're also called hagiographies, and that word has come to have some negative connotations, meaning uncritical praise of an impossibly perfect figure. That is almost certainly justified, as most vitae are not intended as journalism, but as an instruction. Saints were examples to follow, and could act as intermediaries between Christians and God. The biography of Saint Severinus is a bit more believable in its broad outlines than some others, because it was written closer to the events it relates. It makes no really outrageous claims for its subjects. I mean, basically there are no dragons, and Severinus's miracles are fairly small scale, which makes them kind of endearing to my mind. Eugippius, if we take him at face value, knew Severinus personally later in the saint's life, and so the Vita carries a particular verisimilitude. On the other hand, we have to bear in mind that by the time of its writing, Eugippius was in charge of a monastery and in possession of relics. Relics which could be an attraction to pilgrims and to their donations. So, as with all sources, caution has to be exercised. Could Severinus see the future? I'm going to say probably not. Could he command the Danube not to flood? Certainly not. Did he live a life of profound piety and charity in a time of confusion and danger? No reason to doubt it. Such people exist today. Did he found monasteries and teach in them? Probably yes. Is it possible that he didn't exist at all, and was just an invention of Eugipius to sell tickets to the Relic Show? Yeah, it's possible. But I'm not really sure what there is to be gained by that kind of cynicism. Severinus was not alone in his efforts to bring charity and the gospels to the wilds at the fringes of the dying empire. Saints will be a major population block in the character list of this podcast going forward as the church becomes the new unifying force in the western world. Christianity, only out of the shadows for a century and a half, is quickly becoming the strongest thread in the social fabric. The Middle Ages are being born, with men and women like Severinus and Eugipius as their midwives. Next time, we'll need to catch up with events in the south. We left the Vandals just as they set up their new independent kingdom in North Africa, and we should check in on them. King Gaiseric had some very specific ideas about how his kingdom should be organized and how it should relate to the flailing empire. And we'll have reason to talk a little more about religion. Until then, thank you for listening. I have unlocked a new podcast achievement where I need to give some shout-outs for reviews. They go to, at no time for minis on Instagram, a belated shout out to Chamberlain on Apple Podcasts, and one to Luke Berry on the Podbean app. Thank you, Luke. I will do my best to live up to that. Reviews and ratings of any kind are always appreciated, and I will give shout outs to as many as I can until the volume overwhelms me, as I'm sure it will eventually. You can leave them on whatever platform you use, as well as feedback on the website, www.darkagespod.com. If you don't use one of the big podcatcher apps, by the way, and you do review the show, shoot me an email and let me know where I should go and read it. That will add to my list of platforms that I keep an eye on. Twitter and Instagram are also options, at darkagespod for both cases, and Facebook remains Facebook. Just search for Dark Ages Podcast. And as always, thank you all so very much for listening. Until next time, take care.